We're now going to hear from the first letter from John, chapter 2, verses 15, through to chapter 3, verse 10. Just find it. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, father, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, then they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? Is it the man who denies that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ? Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children... Continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that we do not know is that it did not know him dear friends now we are the children of god and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. 
He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. It'd be great if you could keep your Bibles open to 1 John there. Peter's question before about Jesus is coming back, what does that mean for us? Maybe think of a meme that I've seen where it says, Jesus is coming back, quick, look, busy. And uh, I think of that and I think this passage gives us a, a much more significant uh, thing to focus on uh, about Jesus coming back than just looking busy, which I think we're all good at doing, uh, but we're going to hear what that is a bit later on. But let's pray as we continue to look at this together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that this evening that you will help us to see the world through your eyes, that we will love what you would have us love and that we would hate what you would have us hate, that we would live with our eyes fixed on Jesus and on his return. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. My friend Pete, who I grew up with grew through high school and who I went to church with during that time, was very enthusiastic about the fact that we are accepted by God, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. It's about God's grace to us through Jesus and not by works. And Pete was right, and it was great that he was enthusiastic about that. But there was also something wrong with the way that my mate Pete talked about this and the way that he lived this. You see, he would object whenever anyone said to him that how he actually lives matters, that he should do this and that he shouldn't do this. In response, he'd say, no, the Christian life is about freedom. I've been freed from having to follow rules. That's not how God accepts me, which again is true. But for him, it meant that he was always looking for ways to minimise or to work around the ways that God told him how to live, what I must do or what I must not do. You see, Pete had a distorted view of grace that led to a low view of sin, particularly a low view of his own sin. You know, it doesn't matter, it's not that big of a deal. Jesus has covered that for me. And so it caused him to sit lightly with the sin in his life and not really care that much about it. Now, I say this about my mate Pete, but I'm also very aware that I could easily just have inserted my own name in there where I said Pete, particularly at certain times in my life, and perhaps some of us could too. Perhaps you can hear your own life story through Pete's example. And the reason that I mention Pete is because I think one of the real goals of this passage is for each one of us to consider our own lives in this regard to make sure that we're not doing the same thing. See, towards the end of the passage, we get some really strong words about the significance of sin in our life. It says this in chapter 3, verse 6, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And the challenge that we're going to be facing today is, are we going to take those words seriously? Are we going to take that seriously while still holding on to the wonderful goodness of forgiveness that comes through Jesus? Not playing those two ideas off against each other, uh, seeing that sin is significant and believing in forgiveness, but holding on to the both of them. That's the goal and the challenge that we have for today. And as we begin to look at that, you notice that our passage begins, just like it ends with strong words, it begins with some very strong words too. The first sentence of our passage says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Those are pretty blunt words, aren't they? When it comes to loving God or loving the world, you can't have both. And yet it's been my experience that when I hear things like this, that I, that I can't have, that God says I can't have a bit of both, I find myself saying, you just watch me try. I reckon I can. I'm going to give it a, a red hot go. And it's like that with what Jesus says about money, right? Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. You're going to end up loving one and hating the other. But I hear that and I say, well, I'm going to see if I can make a good go of that. What I need to do actually is not love one and not the other. I just need to make sure that I love God more than I love my money. That's what he really means, surely. So the first challenge that we're going to face here when we hear God say these significant things that you can't have this and this together, the challenge that we're going to have is, are we going to trust what God says to me at this point? Because if I do trust what God says, then it's going to require some radical surgery in my life, some significant changes as I seek to not love the world. And he tells us in verse 16 what loving the world looks like. You see it there, three things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. You know, God made so many good things in our world, didn't he? Things for us to enjoy and take pleasure in. But lust of the flesh is when we take those good things that God has created and the natural desires that God has given us and we use them in a way that God tells us not to. And so satisfying my desires becomes what matters for me and so my desires become an expression of my selfishness. I use these desires to get what I want. And I guess the most obvious example that we would think of when it comes to lust of the flesh is, is sexual desires. That instead of using that as God's good gift for the strengthening of a lifelong marriage, it just becomes an appetite that I, excuse me, that I need to satisfy my desire. And you don't have to look that far in our world to see how destructive that kind of desire can be when we use it outside of the way that God has given it for us. I mean, yeah, you see how much pain and, and, and suffering is caused in the world by the misuse of sexual desires whether it's in personal relationships and how much pain it can cause there, or the pornography industry that has become so mainstream that makes other people into an object of lust 
and so that people treat other people as objects. And yet the world encourages us to gratify those desires in whatever way makes us feel good. Other examples of lusts of the flesh would include drunkenness, greed. These are things that promise satisfaction and pleasure. And, we, and when we believe that lie and go along with those things, that's loving the world. The second thing it says there is lust of the eyes, which is, I guess, kind of similar to lust of the flesh, but it's more about coveting those things that I see that other people have. And so it leads to jealousy and dissatisfaction and even hatred of people who have what I want. It's the opposite of contentment. The third one, pride of life. It seems to me that as I get older, this is the one that seems to become the most difficult the hardest. It's about finding pride in my achievements, my success. These are the things that I want to be seen for and known for and to be valued in. And so I become motivated by a desire to be recognised by what I've achieved, by what I have, by what I've accumulated, my successes in whatever area of life I value, whether it's work or family or lifestyle, home and possessions, social life. I mean, how much of this stuff goes on on social media, making, showing my pride and making other people jealous about my life, travel. These are things that I find pride in and, and I end up living for. That's loving the world. And God is very clear. We cannot claim that we love God and let these priorities and these ways of living stay unchallenged in our lives. The two just do not go together. So the question we're left with, I guess, is what's going to help us to love God and not love the world? You know, here you say, I, I, I like that idea, I'm on board with that, what's going to help me to do that? Well, the answer, I think, is that we need to see this world in the context of eternity, that we live for what is eternal. It says in verse 17, the world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. See, the thing that can make those, those desires of the world so powerful is just how present and now they are, right? They're an immediate desire and I can satisfy those things with what I can see and, and, and feel and taste, or at least I think that I can. That's why it can be so hard to resist, because it's right before me now. But John wants us to encourage us to realise how temporary they are and how short-sighted it is to invest in those things. I mean, living for those desires is like investing in fax machines. You know, that doesn't sound like a very good investment, does it? Or saying, I've got, so I've got to go home and update my MySpace page. Do people still know what MySpace is? Does anyone not know what might? Yeah, it's right. It's, nobody cares anymore, right? It was, te it was temporary. It's gone. And that's how he wants us to feel about these desires. They might seem immediate and significant now, but they're passing away. But love for God and living for God will see benefits for eternity. But again, the struggle is that we find it difficult to feel eternity, Right? For most of us, a lifetime feels like eternity and we, we think of that. You know, the rest of my life, that's forever, right? No, it's not forever. The rest of your life is a blip on the radar of eternity. I mean, for some of us, one hour seems like an eternity because 
We live in a world of instant gratification. But if we are someone who trusts in Jesus, then he wants us to see the world in the context of eternity. You know, we get so caught up in the here and now, my life is all about what I can see in front of me. Whether it's the next five years or the next five minutes, it's what I can see in front of me. But we need to have that eternal perspective. These worldly desires that seem so immediate and so pressing, they are passing away. Live for what is eternal. Now, we spent a fair bit of time on those first three verses, really, because that's the centre of what we're looking at today. And the rest of the passage really gives us a couple of encouragements, two encouragements for how we can live with this eternal perspective. And the first one is to not be encouraged, sorry, not be discouraged by deniers. And the second one is to look where we are going. So firstly, don't be discouraged by deniers. We're looking at the whole section from verse 18 through to verse 28 of chapter 2 and it's encouraging, John is encouraging the Christians he's writing to because there are people around them who were telling them that they are wrong. They're telling them that what you believe and the way that you are living is wrong and so they're trying to lead them away from Jesus and you get a summary of this in verse 26. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And these people who are trying to lead them astray, John calls them the Antichrist. Have a look at verse 18 now with me. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. I know what comes to your mind when you think of Antichrist. It kind of makes me think of some kind of spiritual supervillain. You know, Jesus, but the bad guy Jesus. Jesus with a black mask on or something. That's what we think of, right, when we think of the Antichrist. But that's not what John says. That's not who John says the Antichrist is. The reality is actually far more ordinary and probably as a result far more dangerous. He tells us that there's not just one Antichrist, but there are many. And he tells us how we know who the Antichrist is, down in verse 22. See if you can pick it. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. See, the Antichrist, says John, is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. They are anti-Christ in that way. And that's what these people were doing. They were saying, no, Jesus is not the Christ. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus has not died for your sins and risen for your eternal life. He has not returned to the Father and he won't come again to judge the living and the dead and to bring his eternal new creation. That's not what's going to happen. Jesus is not that person. And so what they're really saying is what you believe and what you're living for, that's wrong. But John wants to encourage them, don't be discouraged by that. And particularly he's saying to them, you should expect this. You should expect, of course, there are going to be deniers. The truth always has deniers, and particularly a truth as powerful as this. It's what we should expect. No one bothers to deny something that is insignificant, right? I mean, think about it like this. 2,000 years ago, a Jewish man rose to prominence. People around him thought that he was going to be someone significant. They hailed him as the Christ 
as the Messiah and a band of followers began to follow him. But the Romans captured him, they executed him, his followers disbanded and his movement came to an end. Who am I talking about? Simon Bar Kokhba. Anyone heard of him? One person in the room. Yeah, that's what I thought. Is anyone denying that Simon Bar Kokhba is the Christ? No, I've never heard anyone deny that because no one is saying it. Nobody cares about Simon Bar Kokhba. No one's claiming that he is. He's irrelevant. History has forgotten him. He's not worth denying. And in fact, there are plenty of people who are in that category who've been hailed as being the Christ or someone similar, but they become irrelevant. Jesus, on the other hand, is so significant that he's worth denying. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's still true today. Simon Bar Kokhba was trying to make a difference on the political and the military level, but the claims of Jesus are far more personal. Jesus claims lordship and authority over the hearts and lives of every single person on the planet, and that is something that people will oppose. They opposed it in John's day, and they still oppose it today. Jesus is a truth worth denying. And John is saying to his first readers, don't be surprised about that. If anything, it's all the more reason to believe the truth of it. This is what Jesus said would happen. The truth attracts deniers. But of course, that doesn't make it easy still, does it? Just like John's first readers, we have people around us who are telling us that we are stupid or worse for believing in Jesus and for living for Jesus. And it's not easy to live like that, particularly when we're trying to live in such a way that is different from the people around us, when we're trying to not love the world and the things of this world and the people are crowding around and saying, you're stupid, you're wrong. Jesus calls calls us to live such different lives. It's hard to do that when the world is shouting us down. So John is saying, don't be discouraged by deniers. This is exactly what we should expect. We are sitting on the precipice of eternity. This is the last hour. Jesus could return at any moment. So, of course, the devil is going to try and throw everything he can at us to turn us away from our trust in Jesus. Don't let it. Don't be discouraged by deniers. The next encouragement that John gives in the last section of this passage is to look where we are going. Look where we are going. He says, we will be made like Christ, so live like Christ. And you see this in verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we will see him as he is. We shall be like Christ when he returns. And in this passage, like Jesus, it specifically says, means righteous, it means pure, it means holy, it means without sin. That's what we are looking forward to. And so he's saying if that's what we're looking forward to, then of course we should want to be like that now, shouldn't we? And so he says in the next verse, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies themselves just as Jesus is pure. So you can't say that I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back. I'm looking forward to what that's going to be like. 
I'm looking forward to being holy and pure and without sin and not want to start living like that now. It's crazy. I've mentioned before about how waiting for the return of Jesus in this sense is like waiting for the chocolate cake that you're making to come out of the oven. You know what it's like when you've made a chocolate cake, you've, you've baked this delicious cake with all its chocolatey goodness and you put it in the oven and, and you can't hurry it up, can you? It's got, it's got to be in there for what, half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever it is. So what do you do when you're waiting? You're looking forward to getting a taste of that. What do you do when you're waiting? Come on, someone tell me. You know what it is. You lick the bowl. That's right. You lick the beaters. You want to get a taste of that now. And so you lick the bowl. You lick the beaters. If we're looking forward to what we will be like when Jesus returns, then surely we should want to get a taste of that now. Surely we should start wanting to live like that now. So I hope we're beginning to see how absurd it is that I could want to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life and not actually want to get sin completely out of my life now. Forgiveness is, is, is part of a bigger picture. And so you look in verse 5, why did Jesus come? To take away our sins. Or in verse 8, he came to destroy the devil's work, which is holding us in the grip of sin. Now, does that mean Jesus came to take away our sins? Does that mean having our sin completely forgiven? Yes, it certainly does. Is that all it means? No, not at all. God's goal for us is no sin. That's why Jesus came. God's vision for us for eternity is for us to be completely free from the destructive power of sin. Its penalty, its power, its consequences, gone. And it's not possible to want to be a part of that and have a different vision for my life now. Which is why he has those strong words in verse 6 of chapter 3. He wants to be absolutely clear, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Or again, down in verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. So you can't say yes to forgiveness and yes to sin. Now this isn't saying that if we fail, it's over. Or that once we're Christians, God's standard for us is moral perfection. And if we don't meet that, then he kicks us out. That's not at all what this is saying. Forgiveness is an ongoing reality for believers. And that's a wonderful thing that we need to hold on to. And John has been very clear about that in the first part of this letter. But it is saying that I need to believe that sin has no place in my life. And you need to believe that too. That we need to hate it as much as God hates it. That we cannot hold on to it. And we need to feel the weight of that. That I can't be looking forward to an eternal life when I'll be completely free of sin and not actually want to remove it from my life now. I remember when I was younger being a perfect example of what not to do in this regard. I'd be, I'd be doing something that I knew that God tells me not to do, or even thinking about planning to do something that I knew God tells me not to do. And I think, well, I'll just make sure that I ask for forgiveness later on and God will forgive me because he's that kind of guy. That's crazy, isn't it? 
Thankfully, God shook me out of that and through um, some helpful teachers showed me how stupid that is. But do you see how crazy it is? You can't say yes to forgiveness and yes to sin. We are looking forward to something better. We are looking forward to being made pure like Jesus. And so we should want to be like that now. So let's just finish again by just wrapping it back to where we started in this struggle to not love the world and its desires and the things of the world. And so as I think about that lust of the flesh, maybe that, that I struggle with, that you struggle with, that covetous desire, that living for pride in my achievements and possessions, whatever it might be that I struggle with or you struggle with, I need to tell myself as significant as that seems now, as hard as that is to resist now, it's only temporary. It is passing away. And I am meant for something better. Jesus is coming back soon and I'm going to share eternal life with him. I'm going to be like him and so I want to start being like that now. I want to live for him now. That's my desire and my ambition that I want to control my life now. And I say that to myself today and I say it again tomorrow and I say it every day until he returns or until I go to be with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts and our minds. You know those things that we struggle with in our secret thoughts and in our secret places where nobody else knows. Father, help us to resist those things that are a part of loving this world and the desires that are passing away. Father, help us to recognise that Jesus came to rid this world and our lives of sin. Father, thank you that that means that you don't hold our sin against us, but please help us to also believe that you want us to remove sin from our lives. And we pray that you will give us the strength to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.